The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Monday, October 9th, 2023. You're watching Dog Shirt Television with our usual superior um, uh, production values. uh, And uh, what we lack in production values, uh, we make up for in uh, superiority of content. Uh, I am here with Beverly Gage whom I have never met before, unlike the two uh, previous guests on uh, 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 on Dogshirt TV. We have no prior relationship at all. Um, and um, But uh, Beverly is the author of a truly uh, magisterial biography of uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, that is remarkable in a number of ways, but I, I, I want to stress that one of the respects in which it is astonishing, frankly, is just the range and depth and length of the subject's career. This is a man who was in office, in the same office by different names, more or less continuously for 50 years, during which he played a substantial role in the presidencies of how many different people? Eight presidents. Eight presidents. Um, so it's a it's a crazy uh, long career um, that the history of which is really the history of the American presidency in interaction with the idea and conception and reality of law enforcement. And so I wanted to start by asking you how you got interested in this and how you took on a project like this and how long it took. Well, it didn't take quite as long for me to write it as it took J. Edgar Hoover to live it, but but it it seemed close at times. Um, first of all, it's great to be here. And I, I have a dog wandering around in the background because I thought it was thematically appropriate. Uh, so, um, he might show up. Excellent. Um, but yeah, you know, I really got interested in Hoover for some of the reasons that you've already suggested, which is the sheer breadth as well as the depth of his career. He became FBI director in 1924, and he died with that same job in 1972. So that was Calvin Coolidge to Richard Nixon. And it seemed like a period in which the federal government had been transformed, particularly the security state. And he seemed like a particularly good vehicle for thinking about that. Um, And then I also thought he was just a figure that had been somewhat misunderstood, um, had become this kind of one dimensional villain. And I didn't want to redeem J. Edgar Hoover by any means, but I thought he had a much more complicated and much more interesting career than his sort of villainous uh, reputation would suggest. So 
Uh, yeah, I set out to do it. I knew it was going to be a big book and I knew it was going to take a while. Um, it took about 12 years to do the writing and research. Uh, I was doing other things during those years too, but um, but it was a long haul and it was a deep dive into some kind of amazing archives. Yeah, so I am. I want to start with the question of... Um, how much of our perception of J. Edgar Hoover is conditioned by the last 12 years of his life. And uh, to get you to address that, I'm, I want to just ask if he had died in 1960 instead of 1972, how would we remember him? That's actually the way the book starts is in 1959 when there's big Hollywood movie, movie coming right. out, right? The FBI story uh, starring Jimmy Stewart and he's heroic. And, you know, that was in many ways sort of the peak of Hoover's popularity and influence in the 1950s. And the book suggests if he had retired at that moment, we would have a very different understanding of who he had been. And as you suggest, a lot of the way that we remember him really is about the 1960s. It's about the 1970s. And in particular, it's about the fact that he died just a few years before the church committee, which was this big investigation into the intelligence services um, and the fact that he was gone by the time the church committee occurred meant that you know, there were lots of abuses that were discovered that were truly outrageous. But it also meant that he was sort of a convenient figure, you know, to kind of blame all of these outrages and abuses on J. Edgar Hoover. He's dead. He's gone. Um, and, uh, and, and that kind of allowed the country to move on at that point. But I think his, his reputation was really stamped in that moment. But the, there was the reputation at the time, and then there's the reputation in retrospect, and they're quite different as we, like, he was enormously popular in his lifetime. He's a one-dimensional villain in most people's eyes. Now, um, he's, he's thought of as relentlessly political in retrospect and apolitical in his most in, in many respects in his lifetime but it does seem to me that there's another factor at work which is that he got much worse and i was surprised in reading even the sections about the red scares um uh that you know, most of the people that the FBI, as opposed to McCarthy, went after were actually spies. Um, and, you know, he had a pretty good record of fingering people who had serious problems. Um, he was not one of the, during World War II, there were relatively minor civil liberties infringements that the FBI was responsible for. Um, and it does seem like the vast majority of what we remember him for that's ugly takes place in a relatively abbreviated 12-year period leading up to his death. And I, I guess I, as I read the book, I'm, I'm, 
struck by sort of two possible explanations of it. One is the one that Martin Luther King, you quote, uh, saying, which is that he's old and senile and he's paranoid and, you know, he's kind of batty. Um, and the second is the one that you kind of never quite say, but I think imply is that the 60s really bring out a series of pathologies in him because he's you know, up until then, you didn't have to make a choice between race and government power. And all of a sudden, in 1963, 1964, you really do. And so I'm curious, I don't want, I'm not asking you to reduce it to a a, a, a one-dimensional decision, but to what extent is this an old guy who should have retired, who's kind of like your old racist uncle? Um, and to what extent is it that, you know, this confronted him with a, he was per, of, of reasonably sound mind, but he behaved the way he would have behaved if he'd been 30 years younger. He just really didn't like Black people. And he really didn't like the KKK um, uh, usurping his power to deal with things the way he saw fit? Well, I think there are elements of all of that, to be honest. So certainly there, he, as he got older, uh, he was more out of touch with the new left in particular, with the young people, the fashions of the age. But I mean, he was a he was a cultural conservative his whole life. And he, I think, as a result, was much more out of step with the, both the politics and the culture of the 1960s. Uh, but I also think that we can see a lot of continuities. And in some ways, you know, what happens in the 60s is really kind of a cautionary tale, a sort of classic civil libertarian cautionary tale in which the FBI's power expands really dramatically, uh, particularly in terms of political surveillance and intelligence during the Second World War, right, in this moment of crisis, in the late 40s and 50s, a lot of that energy and a lot of the techniques that they're developing from you know, infiltration to wiretapping to surveillance is directed at the Communist Party, at alleged and often real communist agents, right, who are pretty unpopular, pretty universally unpopular in the United States during that period. Um, and then in the 1960s, part of what happens is that Hoover takes those techniques and takes those powers that have been pioneered on the communists, and he expands them into this vast range of other groups. So he goes after Martin Luther King, he goes after the civil rights movement, he goes after the new left and the anti-war movement, and he also, as you suggest, goes after the movements of the far right white supremacist organizations and the Ku Klux Klan. Um, but what had been intended as this kind of national security intervention, right? The Communist Party is allied with the Soviet Union and we're in the years of the Cold War. All of those techniques become expanded into many, many other groups in the 1960s and groups that had a lot more 
currency, a lot more cachet in American politics, um, and the political calculus changes too, right? He was in some ways, I think, a real creature of sort of the mid-century bipartisan consensus to the degree that it existed. And when things started to, you know, polarize in the 1960s, um, opinion about J. Edgar Hoover polarizes too. So, it, I mean, one thing that the book does incredibly well is describe the advent of different FBI functions that, um, you know, frankly, I'd never really thought about whether they should or should not be traced to the personality of J. Edgar Hoover and the sort of, you know, the the fact that there's a first-rate crime lab, the idea of, um, you know, of a professionalized federal law enforcement that, you know, was qualitatively different from sort of local police thuggery, um, which it sometimes lived up to and sometimes didn't, but but it certainly aspired to be and sort of thought of itself as an elite federal agency. And this this sort of uh, sense of like we think of technocracy as a liberal thing, you know, that there's this progressive era, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a federal agency that can do all kinds of things. Um, but here you have a guy who, whatever else you say about him, is a, a sort of founding father of uh, the idea that you can have a federal agency that spread all over the country that does law enforcement and security investigations, um, and yet has and has a kind of technocrats um, management prowess, and yet a deeply socially conservative outlook about what it's used for, and I'm. I'm curious for your thoughts on uh, sort of who were the other conservative technocracy people? Was he singular or were there, are there other kind of important figures in the building of these government institutions that we take for granted that were kind of similarly uh, similarly out of step with the politics of the administrations that they often served in. I couldn't think of any as I was going through it. I do think that Hoover is pretty singular uh, in the, certainly the length of his career, but also in the thing that really fascinated me about him from the beginning, which is this kind of interesting political puzzle, which is he was a deep believer in the kind of progressive idea of professional expert career government service that was going to be nonpartisan. It was going to stand apart from all sorts of political pressure. He was a deep believer in federal power and the kind of animating use of federal power, a lot of which is coming out of the progressive era and then the New Deal, right? Things that we tend to associate with a kind of liberal vision of the state or a progressive vision of the state. And at the same time, he's this deep social conservative on race, 
religion, law and order, anti-communism, especially, which is really the cause of his life. And he managed to kind of put these two things together and then create the FBI at the intersection of these two pieces, which we don't see certainly in our own time going together very often. But I think even in his day, you didn't see happening as often. Now, there were figures in the security state who I think were very sympathetic to that combination of things, but they didn't have Hoover's kind of influence and power. And then you had a set of elected officials, particularly from uh, from the white South, who were conservatives, who were in federal power for a long time, but they, again, didn't have kind of the faith in the technocracy, the faith in the kind of administrative state, the security state, the federal state. So I do think he's a he's a singular creature in, in that sense, even though there were a lot of people um, who sympathized with him. Yeah, I mean, I could not think of a sim- similar figure, even in the even in the loosest sense, if you think about the sort of development of federal agencies, first of all, they're not usually the story of a single person's life. Um, You know, if you think about the development of the Department of Defense or the Department of Justice, for that matter, it's, there is no founding father of the Department of Justice. There's a long series of attorneys general over time who play different roles, but the FBI really, and it's unique in the intelligence community in that regard too, the FBI is really unusual, but then you also have this guy who can serve under Coolidge and Roosevelt, who Coolidge, Coolidge, Hoover, and Roosevelt, then stick around for Nixon. You know, that like that's a really um so I want to break this up into before we get to the kind of eras. It seems to me he does three really important conceptual things, some for better or for, some for worse. One is the institutional creation and development of the FBI. And and You know, now we have this whole rule of law FBI thing post-Levy guidelines. But the thing that's striking about it to me is how much the FBI is the same institution as the one that he created. It's, you know, a federal investigative agency that has limited jurisdiction, uh, that works with U.S. attorney's offices, is spread out by field offices, and the head of a field office is called this a special agent in charge, right? I mean, and, you know, the seat of government is now nobody calls it that. They call it HQ. But it, I mean, it's really the same institution. Um, and it seems to me, if you believe in the role of federal law enforcement, however uncomfortably, you've got to acknowledge a debt to Hoover. Is that it? Am I, was the, this is unfair to ask a historian, but was the, was the creation of the FBI in something like its current form an inevitability, or is it really just a, you know, a creature of the person who created it? I think there are elements of each. So it seems unlikely that the United States would have 
you know, evolved over the course of the 20th century without a federal law enforcement agency and without, you know, a federal intelligence agency, domestic intelligence agency of some sort. Uh, and so those things would have happened, I think, without Hoover due to the nature of politics, the growing size of the federal government, the crises of the 20th century, particularly the the Second World War and the Cold War. But I think the very particular way in which the FBI developed is all about Hoover. He spent the first decade from the 20s into the mid-30s really developing this very interesting and I think in many ways kind of unique institutional culture. It was a very tight-knit place. He hired the first generation of officials and agents really out of institutions that he knew and loved, his fraternity, his college. His, his racist, his racist deep South Southern, Southern fraternity. fraternity, right? Exactly. I mean, his, his fraternity is, as you describe it, quite a piece of work. Yes, it is. And they are they are still around today. Um, this fraternity called Kappa Alpha that was really formed to carry on the traditions of the white South was an explicitly Southern fraternity. Um, and he is both hiring this first generation of agents and officials and then you know, seeking to kind of perfect the FBI as a bureaucracy, as, you know, a place that is going to be this kind of technocratic paradise. He's setting up FBI collection of crime statistics, which was very contingent at the time. There's lots of debate about who should collect crime statistics. And the FBI wins that battle, the FBI Academy, uh, the FBI Lab, right? A whole set of institutions that are still with us today, incredibly important in terms of uh, federal law enforcement, as well as law enforcement more broadly. And then he spends the 1930s and 40s really acquiring the basic building blocks of the jurisdiction that the FBI still has today, right? Getting new uh, capacities in federal law enforcement, right? Criminal law enforcement, carrying guns, kidnapping, right? All sorts of interstate crime. And then in the war, expanding out into uh, domestic surveillance and intelligence in a really big way. And I think all of those elements, the very particular internal culture of the FBI, and then the weird combination that is still the Bureau, which is on the one hand, federal law enforcement, and on the other hand, an intelligence agency all combined into one, right? Those are all due really to Hoover, his ability to take advantage of uh, the opportunities and the trends and the politics and the crises um, in which he kind of built the Bureau during those years. So I... I want to add a couple of other points that I think are, I'd never really thought about whether they're lineal descendants of J. Edgar Hoover, but I think after reading the book, I can't really make an argument in the other direction. Uh, one of them, which you alluded to, is the combination of the internal security functions and the police functions. Very few other countries have that. So, you know, Britain has you know, MI6 and MI5 are separate from Scotland Yard. Uh, in I'm thinking of other countries that have very robust examples of this, but in in uh, in in Israel, the Shin Bet and the uh, and the Mossad are are separate from the national police. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a like 
most countries don't combine those intelligence functions, the domestic intelligence functions with their uh the other thing that strikes me as different is the all of these entities have vertic are vertically integrated but the FBI has a real cult of the director um and the director you know Jim Comey tried to strip down the cult of the director and make it less And then there was a cult of the cool director who you could talk to in the cafeteria, right? I mean, there's no, the the FBI is this kind of pyramidal structure up to the director. And I can't really think of a reason for that other than that it was built as a cult of personality around J. Edgar Hoover. It absolutely was, you know, and Hoover was pretty strategic about not only how he thought about the very hierarchical structure of the bureau itself, right, in which all things flowed up to one man, and one man was the final judge on most things, uh, but also creating a kind of self-reinforcing culture um, in which often he didn't have to be the final word because you know, everyone understood what it was that J. Edgar Hoover wanted, what his priorities were, how you were supposed to dress, how you were supposed to think, what church you were supposed to go to, right? I mean, every element of your life. Uh, and so I think that that's true. He was also really quite focused on then in turn making the FBI a kind of central node or a model for uh, law enforcement writ large in the United States. And one of the really interesting things to me in thinking about uh, his power as well as his view of government were the ways in which he found these strategic things for the FBI to do that would put it in touch with every local police department in the United States would mean that he had a kind of local police official who was his ally in almost every city in the country. And that was everything from, you know, setting up the the kind of central fingerprint bureau or the lab, these things where the FBI was really useful to local police departments, to the National Academy, right, in which you were getting all of these local and then even international police officials coming in uh, to be trained in the Hoover vision, the Hoover ideology, the Hoover policies, Um, And he was incredibly smart about doing that. So the FBI itself fed right into the director's office, but he really wanted all of law enforcement in the United States, too, to feed from the local level up to the federal level and ultimately uh, to, you know, FBI HQ. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting in your account is, you know, the common mythology is that nobody fired Hoover because he had dirt on everybody. And your account is actually completely different from that, which is that, you know, with the possible exception of Kennedy, um, he just made himself really useful to everybody. And people found no reason to get rid of him and that he could do all kinds of things that were 
you know, from policy things to, I, I was just surprised by how many presidents Kennedy and, um, and, uh, and Truman really being the only exceptions, they all seem to like him, right. which I, you know, he seems like a, like a loathsome individual. <laughs> and yet like, like he clearly had some really winning aspects of his personality because people really, they seem to enjoy his company and they seem to really find him useful. Um, I gotta say, I did not find him appealing. Um, how much of it was utility and how much of it was that he they they enjoyed his company? Well, I think utility was a lot of it, right? So the book is attempting to get a little bit away from the idea, as you say, that uh, the only source of Hoover's power was that he had the goods on everyone. And there's some truth to that. I mean, certainly, you know, an awful lot about John Kennedy's sex life, right? About kind of the misdeeds of many people in Congress and in the press. And, and so he did have those files. What's more, people believe that he might have those files. And so right. that's as good as actually having Right. Um, and so people treated him as though he might know their deepest, darkest secrets, even when he didn't. But I think there are lots of other things that we have to look to to explain, you know, his power, his influence and how he stayed in office so long from uh, from his popularity and his kind of PR initiatives, which were very effective to the fact that he did make himself extremely useful to most people in the White House, right? Even Kennedy, who didn't like him at all, uh, but certainly to many, many other figures. And in fact, uh, he not only made himself useful, but ultimately, you know, a lot of times the dirt that he had on, uh, you know, say Lyndon Johnson was that he knew the things that Lyndon Johnson had asked him to do, some of which were pretty outrageous. Right. And Johnson right. knew that Hoover knew because Johnson had asked him to do it and Hoover had done it for him, right? And something similar with Richard Nixon as well. Now, in both of those cases, Hoover actually had pretty long-standing friendships, uh, both with Johnson and with Nixon. And so there was uh, I think a, a genuine sense of, um, if not quite affection, then real trust um, and a certain kind of friendship that uh, was a little bit outside of politics, actually, particularly in Nixon's case. But mostly he knew how to uh, both respond to and be useful to important political figures and to be a little bit scary to them too, right? right at right. the same time. It's 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 the the perfect Machiavellian combination of liked and feared. Um all right, so the other innovation that I think is the one that we really hold against him is this idea of political intelligence. But what I did not realize until I read your book is that and I've read the whole church committee report. So, you know, I like it actually made me think about this in a way that I've never thought about it before. Political intelligence meant something different before 1960 than it did after 1960. And so before 1960, the basic contours of political intelligence are you have these foreign actors 
communists, fascists, he's more interested in communists than fascists, um, that raise internal security questions. There are sympathetic people. You can investigate the, the sympathetic people and you can do it without really looking for criminal activity. You can just make sure the president is aware of who may be a communist or who may be a uh, and by the way, you may trip over some spies along the way, in which case, you know, you prosecute them. Um, after 1960 is, 1960s, political intelligence means something really different, which is the president wants you to investigate his opponents and in the Democratic Convention. So you get wiretaps on them you you know the you don't like martin luther king not because he you think he poses a security problem but because well it's not really clear actually what the security rationale is he's he's hanging out with people who used to be communists or who may still be communists um I, I'm curious whether you think he would understand the idea that his conception of political intelligence had really radically changed, or whether he would say by 1968, he's the doing the same thing that he was doing in the 30s. Well, the way that I myself got interested in Hoover as a historian was uh, by looking at uh, in the last book that I wrote, which was really about the teens and the 20s, was coming across him as a very young man um, as the at the age of 24 as the head of this new creation in the Justice Department called the Radical Division, right? And the Radical which Division- Which is a great name, by the way. I want to <laughs> exactly. have something called the Radical Division. <laughs> And so he really cut his teeth. You know, this is basically the first peacetime federal surveillance effort aimed explicitly at the left in the years after uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, aimed at communists and anarchists and Black activists uh, at a moment when, you know, a lot of the country really feared that there might be some kind of revolution or at least uh, dramatic acts of revolutionary violence, which in fact there, there were there during been. those years. Right. And so Hoover uh, really cuts his teeth, gets a lot of his first experience as a very young man in that kind of political surveillance, which uh, goes away a little bit in the 20s and 30s. Um, and then he reengages uh, once the Second World War comes along. But ultimately, I think what he ends up doing in the 60s looks an awful lot like what he was doing as a very young man, and in fact, maybe looks more like that uh, than what we saw in the 40s and 50s, in which you did have this real national security logic uh, at work in the sense that, you know, the Communist Party is allied with the Soviet Union, uh, you know, Nazi and fascist groups in the United States have some sort of uh, global implication, uh, affiliation with Germany, etc. Um, so, so I, mean, I think I it is know. both. I think it's both different and has these uh, has these antecedents. That's interesting. I want to defend him in the twenties uh, mm -hmm. uh, on this. Um, it seems to me, first of all, he is the head of the radical division, but he's a, a, 
a young staffer. Um, and, um, and he is, but, but secondly, and more importantly, I think the logic of the activity in the 20s is, is more grandiose than in the 30s and 40s. They scale it back, but it's similar. It's you're at war with Germany. The Bolshevik revolution happens and you've got these anarchists who are, who are, a lot of them are Russian. Um, and a, a whole lot of them are foreign. Um, and so you're worried about, and Lenin's promising to spread revolution all over the world. And then you've got these foreigners here who are trying to spread revolution by their own account. And so you have this, um, the internal security logic is not especially distinct from a foreign security logic. That strikes me as, you know, reasonably similar to the logic of the 40s and 50s, but quite different from the logic of, you know, hey, some, some, you know, you know, some Black people locally, domestically, with no connection to any foreign group are demanding civil rights, have a presumption of investigating them without any suspicion that they committed a crime. I, it it seems to me like like the 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 twenties was the sort of learning curve of how far you can't go for the thirties, forties, and fifties, and then the sixties. He was like, ah, fuck it, let's just do everything. I think there's some truth to that in the sense that the the kind of early civil liberties pushback against what he did at the radical division becomes very important to him. And he's really thinking about that, uh, particularly in the 40s and 50s. But I think the parallel that, that I would make is that the real concern in, say, 1919, 1920, when he's a very young man, is actually about revolutionary disorder. It's about kind of acts of uh, domestic disorder, acts of revolutionary violence that are going to be committed in the United States. And it doesn't have a lot to do with um, the idea of foreign espionage, per se. There's a little bit of that during the war, right? But it's not about, you know, the Soviet Union is infiltrating the United States with agents that we need to root out, and you have this institutionalized Communist Party, or even, you know, with the with the Nazis and kind of fascist movements. It was much more a sense that, oh my gosh, you know, there is disorder in the streets. The United States is seeing these kind of anarchic revolutionary impulses. Um, and so what he's saying and what he's doing in 1919 doesn't look that different from what he's doing in 1969 in that sense that his primary interest is really in, you know, these kind of radicalized anarchic groups that are interested in revolutionary violence. Now, I take your point that his surveillance of someone like Martin Luther King, right, is a little bit different. And that, you know, I spent a lot of time going into the FBI, really extensive and totally wild and outrageous uh, campaign of surveillance and disruption against King in particular. And that, in many ways, I think, uh, it uh, doesn't fit into either one of right. these paradigms, right? Um, right, but, I mean, that was, uh, a, like, you know, people always can call it the surveillance of Martin Luther King. 
it wasn't a it wasn't surveillance surveillance was the least of it it was an attempt to destroy him because he you know including to induce him to commit suicide because he had criticized the the uh percentage of northern versus southern agents in southern field offices which hoover years later couldn't get past there there's something very weird and sort of intensely uh, I, I don't know sort of like he, the guy held a grudge yeah, there are a whole constellation of reasons that the FBI ends up in this really just epic campaign that is not just surveillance, but is active disruption, discrediting, harassment, intimidation of King. You know, and some of these are very early sort of national security logic worries about, uh, you know, members current and former of the Communist Party who are in his orbit. Uh, Some of it becomes about the fact that King criticized the FBI, said that he thought there were too many Southern board agents in Southern field offices, and therefore that the FBI wasn't doing enough on civil rights. Um, Some of it has to do with uh, kind of back and forth the ways that the FBI tries to pressure the Kennedy administration and trying to get King to get rid of these communists in his orbit. And he sort of fudges about that and isn't totally upfront about what he's doing. But it escalates from there, you know, into uh, wiretaps on his advisors, then wiretaps on King himself, um, and then bugging of King's hotel rooms, finding out all sorts of things about King's sex life, uh, and then trying to use that material both in the press and in Congress, but also directly uh, aimed at King in these kind of showdowns that are both uh, public in late 1964 and also private in which they, you know, send him copies of the tapes along with uh, threatening anonymous letters trying to get him, um, as King interpreted it, to, uh, to, to kill himself. So it's a dramatic story really of escalation and of what can happen with with almost no accountability and a lot of secrecy. But I think it is worth noting that a lot of that wasn't as secret as we might want to understand it to be. Like Lyndon Johnson knew a lot of what was going on. A lot of people in Washington understood what the FBI was. Well, he, had press com- he had press right. conferences right. about exactly. it. I mean, so I, I uh, but I do think it's this is why I raise the the batty, uh, you know, was he kind of out of control, going crazy in his old age, because this is completely unlike the super disciplined way he deals with uh, communists in the 50s, where he's very keen to not be McCarthy, to be a responsible actor. Yes, he's, you know. Yes, he uh, 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 ruined a lot of people's lives, but uh, the people they actually accused, you know, turned out to be atomic spies or, um, or you know, Alger Hiss didn't turn out to be innocent. And, um, you know, they they were actually had a pretty high hit rate in terms of people who got formally accused turning out the FBI's evidence actually turned out to be pretty good most of the time. And, um, and there doesn't seem to be this 
obsessive personal persecution of people, even, you know, some of the people who were named in the Venona intercept or identified in the Venona intercept, he can't make a case against them. So they just live the rest of their lives, you know, and, and one of them just, you know, had a movie made about him. Um, you know, he, I, it strikes me as different and, and I've, not been able to get my mind around the question of whether that's because King was both black and getting the Nobel prize and sort of being, he was challenging this idea that Hoover had that the principal citizens of the country had to reflect his kind of hierarchy of, of race and hierarchy of, you know, certain types of status, or whether it was just a, he was old and and well past his prime and he got a bug bee in his bonnet about it. I think it's some of all of that. And I think he also understood that he could do it, right? Um, that in fact, you know, for the most part, I mean, the Kennedy administration went along with what he wanted to do. In fact, uh, it was Robert front. Kennedy's idea. Exactly. Robert Kennedy proposes wiretapping Robert King and, uh, and the FBI says, oh, I don't know, that seems a little politically sensitive. And then after the <laughs> March on Washington, they all say, oh, well, actually, you know, obviously King is such a big threat. He's such a powerful, charismatic leader. Um, that we are going to go ahead with this. And Robert Kennedy signs those wiretap uh, orders, you know, or Lyndon Johnson, who, you know, is a really interesting figure in the ways that he uh, both pushes Hoover and the FBI to kind of do some of their best work on civil rights um, and to really be, you know, a federal enforcement force uh, for new civil rights legislation, and then also is just aiding and abetting the worst parts of uh, Hoover's vendetta against King. And it's clear that Hoover understood when Lyndon Johnson became president that it was going to be permission to kind of do whatever he wanted against King. Now, it's not clear that Johnson knew every detail of what they were up to, uh, but he he liked to hear about the FBI surveillance. He asked for the FBI surveillance in lots of cases. Um, and I think Hoover thought that Johnson wanted him to be doing that. So, you know, I think it's a complicated equation. Certainly there is an element of like, Hoover, right, the long stay, he was very offended personally by anyone who criticized him, particularly if they were Black people who he felt were, you know, upending the racial order, and particularly if they were Black people like Martin Luther King, who said things like, you know, there is a higher law, we're going to create acts of civil disobedience, right, he didn't like that as a strategy, there are any number of reasons we could point to, and they obviously became really a whole stew for Hoover that he felt deeply and that he really pushed for. But he was enabled by lots and lots of people, you know, and one of the most striking pieces of just kind of basic public information that I came across was there's this moment in late 1964 where Hoover denounces King as the most notorious liar in America. 
And they have this big public showdown, and then they have this sort of uh, fake, you know, coming fake together. And they have a nice meeting, reconciliation yeah. in J. Edgar Hoover's office. But in the public opinion polls after that showdown, you know, far more Americans support J. Edgar Hoover than support Martin Luther King. And so we obviously have a very different understanding of these historical characters, but I think Hoover felt empowered by lots and lots of people um, to do what he was doing. Right. So I want to explore that. One of the things that uh, is striking about that section of the book is that one of the two of those men has a memorial uh, in um, not too far of a walk from the Justice Department building, and it's not J. Edgar Hoover. And throughout the book, you describe Gallup polling that has these stratospheric um, uh, approval ratings for Hoover that are simply unlike anything that presidents get. I, I mean, you know, upwards, some of them are upwards of 90% approval. Um, and yet this is a person who is taking highly controversial positions on lots of issues, whose some of whose failures are, you know, pretty dramatic, um, and who um, is, you know, a kind of culture warrior in a way that we would never let a career bureaucrat be a culture warrior today, you know, the, like the idea that the the career senior career official at the Justice Department, I guess who for, for many years was David Margolis, would go out and you know give a press conference in which he, you know, is unthinkable, and um, and so I'm I'm. I'm interested in this permission for a, an appointed bureaucrat to have his own relations with Congress, his own relations with uh, the press, his own, he writes books, um, which are, you know, proselytic on all sorts of issues, including, you know, religion. Um, how, like, were other bureaucrats doing anything like that? Or like was the head of NASA while I didn't notice, <laughs> you know, like writing writing books, telling people how to live their lives? How did he get away with that? Right. It is one of the remarkable things. I mean, especially because one of the favorite topics for J. Edgar Hoover, right, the childless, quote unquote, bachelor of uh, of the age was to tell people how to run their marriages and how to raise their children and how to live their lives and uh, all of that. And so he was this just incredibly capacious cultural figure, in addition to being you know, a, a national security official and a long-serving government bureaucrat. And it's really difficult uh, to think about figures like that. You know, people often bring up someone like Robert Moses, uh, the New York Parks Commissioner, right, this, who exercised tremendous power in reshaping New York over many, many years and over, you know, roughly comparable years to Hoover. And it's true that Moses exercised a lot of power, but he was not simultaneously, you know, this great speech maker and cultural figure and household name and the subject of Hollywood movies, right? They were very different 
combinations of power. You know, and I think in Hoover's case, part of it is simply that when he got the job, when he was 29 years old and he became director of the Bureau, nobody envisioned that the FBI was going to become what it became. And he was very adept at both kind of holding on to a core set of ideas, pretty conservative cultural ideas, but, you know, sort of progressive liberal ideas about the state at the same time. But he held on to these kind of very consistent ideas. And yet he was able to adapt through crises in all sorts of ways. But as he acquired more power, there just weren't really any mechanisms of accountability um, to rein him in. You know, there were no intelligence committees. There was no limit on the FBI director's tenure. Uh, there was no sense that this was even possible, right? this kind of concentrated political, institutional, and cultural power. And therefore, no one had set up any, any guardrails, and he knew how to take advantage of that. So um, one very interesting dimension of the political intelligence side of of the discussion is the distinction that of political intelligence that the president wants um and his first real foray back into political intelligence comes at the request of Roosevelt, who gets worried about communists and fascists in the mid-30s. And so that's like a classic intelligence function, right? You're informed, you're not, you're, you know, the president tasks the intelligence community. There, there wasn't an intelligence community then, but that would be like a really familiar tasking to the modern intelligence community, except that it's domestic, right? The president the president's worried about North Korea. Let's collect on North Korea, right? Um, but the second category is political intelligence about people that J. Edgar Hoover thinks are scary for one reason or another, sometimes often because he thinks they're communists, um, uh, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and then later, because he's pathological and he really doesn't like the new left, um, it seems to me that one of his, he, he didn't ever manage, I think, to distinguish between the two of these, like things like there's this one part where in where in the Johnson administration where Johnson asks him, can you can you spy on the the freedom democrats at the atlantic city convention for me and he's kind of knows it's wrong but he does it anyway um but when he thinks somebody's dangerous uh he never thinks it's wrong and so i'm trying to think through like what was you know uh you you quote is it deloche at one point uh one of his Aid saying, yeah, the Atlantic City thing was totally lawless. We just did it anyway. Um, I'm like, what was the distinction that they were making in their minds between when this is legitimate and when this is illegitimate? Is it that if it's purely for political reasons, but or if there's some security, like, like why was the King stuff legitimate in their minds and this stuff beyond the pale? Well, I think often for Hoover, it was 
a read on kind of what he could get away with. And I mean that both perniciously and, and not perniciously, right? That he actually had a pretty sophisticated radar for what it was both that the White House and the Attorney General would tolerate and then you know, what the public at large might tolerate if it were to come out. Um, and so he, I, I think in many cases, there wasn't a hard and fast line, right? It was a question of, you know, the politics of the moment, and that was politics up the chain and down the chain as well, trying to read the political atmosphere. Um, and then, you know, along those lines, a sense of what was in the interests of the Bureau, right? He was fiercely protective of the Bureau's autonomy, of its reputation, particularly its nonpartisan reputation. And so, you know, he would do secret favors for Lyndon Johnson or Franklin Roosevelt, uh, but only if he was pretty sure he could do it uh, without getting caught, without it having political ramifications that he didn't want. And whether he was doing those kinds of political favors or any number of surveillance activities, right, the byword at J. Edgar Hoover's bureau was, don't embarrass the bureau. And what he meant by that, and Every agent knew that phrase. It's written in you know, thousands of FBI memos, whether you're talking about COINTELPRO or you're talking about surveillance of the Communist Party or something like the Responsibilities Program, which was a program that the FBI set up in the 1950s to feed information about leftist activists to university presidents and local mayors and school boards and, you know, employers, industrial employers. Uh, the key was, you know, we want to do this, but we're only going to do it if we can do it in a way that's going to remain secret and that's not going to embarrass us. So I think that was often his calculus, right? I mean, he had deep commitments to, you know, particularly targeting the left, sometimes dark, targeting certain organizations on the right, um, and he tried to follow through on those, but within bounds of what he thought, you know, would be would be tolerated and would, you know, nonetheless uh, preserve the reputation of the Bureau. One of the paradoxes of Hoover is that normally when a when a police slash spy agency behaves like this, they are not good at what they do. And one of the, you know, because wasting time spying on people's sex lives is it's a horrendous waste of time. And, you know, you're not using that time to do something productive. Um, it also confuses crime with stuff we don't like, right? Or stuff we can catch you in. Um, one of the oddities of the Bureau is that it, it does seem to have been quite competent. Like he developed a paranoid culture that did all these things in the context of a, you know, a highly professional uh, police force that actually solved, a, you know, showed that you could use federal power to solve a lot of crimes, to catch spies, to, you know, do all kinds of stuff that, um, and so I'm I'm curious to what extent you think this 
the nasty side of Hoover compromised the Bureau's effectiveness? And to what extent, you know, like it was basically a highly functional organization with a bunch of weird pathologies? Well, I think that that's not a bad description of it, actually. So first of all, you know, most of what the Bureau was praised for, held up as a model of, came from the criminal law enforcement side, right? And that 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 seems to have been the realm, both where you could have the big public successes, right? Because the problem with intelligence work in most cases that you know, even when you're doing it well, it's going to remain secret. And that's the goal. Uh, But, you know, when the FBI was tasked with some of its really biggest cases, whether you're talking about uh, during the Second World War, dealing with sabotage or espionage, or, or, or later on, just kind of big kidnapping and assassination cases, right? Often they did a pretty good job. Uh, Not always, but often. And, you know, I think that's a really important piece of understanding Hoover's power as well. That actually, if you're really terrible at what you do, you do no matter how much dirt you have on people, right? You're not going to get to keep your job for that long. And so Hoover was successful enough, particularly in these big, high-profile cases, and was successful enough then in the public relations end of things that. Uh, you know, made FBI agents heroes in in those areas, um, that it was a real source of his power and of his popularity, and he was pretty effective at that. Um, You know, most of their problems and most of what people really um, villainize him for comes from the intelligence side of things, right? And rightly so, comes from uh, the infiltration campaigns, the harassment campaigns, the surveillance campaigns against people who were 100% law-abiding Americans doing right. absolutely nothing wrong, exercising their right to political participation and free speech, right? So there is a there is a vision in which had these two things remained separate, as they are in many places, that you know, the police end of the FBI um, just always had many, many fewer reputational as well as actual problems than the than the intelligence. I also just think it's, it's again, it's not just that it was in the intelligence space. It's that it was in the intelligence space after 1960. Mm-hmm. That I think like so little of, I was actually impressed when I, I will confess this at the risk of being called a McCarthyite, I was impressed as I read your section on the McCarthy era, how sympathetic I was to Hoover's position about the basic, you know, we're we're not, uh, there was one thing that I really, really bothered me, which was the laundering of information through congressional committees. Um, That, that, that's dirty pool and he shouldn't have done it. But, you know, basically his position was, you know, there were no attorney general's guidelines. There was no, you know, his position was we have we have a problem with with CP secret CP people uh spying for the Soviet Union or passing information to people who were spying for the Soviet Union. That's our interest. We are going to identify those people and we're going to try to prosecute those people. That seems more or less right to me. I, you know, there's obviously 
individual things they did that were, you know, very inappropriate. But um, and and the the role that he played in kind of creating an atmosphere in which agencies fired people is is very objectionable. But the people that the FBI named in that context were, you know, they were foreign spies. And and I I I don't I actually came away from it, you know, I, I was much more torn about him up until 1960 than I was, and which is why I liked the the way you sort of started it with the movie. Um, so uh, two more issues I want to discuss before we uh, and people should you know raise their hands as they have questions, and I'll I'll make you audible. Um, the first is uh, his weird role as a morality celebrity, which dovetails in a fascinating way with um, the role that, you know, he sort of sends his people off and they become, you know, people of this sort of Bircher Wright kind of, uh, 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 which he then kind of turns against. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, the, there's been a lot of talk in recent years and, and rightly so in my view of the relationship between the Bircher right and the sort of modern kind of QAnon conspiracy, you know, far right Trumpy culture. Um, I'm, I'm curious whether we should whether Hoover bears some blame for the intellectual origins of this stuff and you know books like you know uh uh his his book about communists hidden among us um uh you know actually played a role in the sort of development of the the uh you know while he was giving speeches about the nuclear family and uh this other you know wholesome wholesome stuff he really cultivated a, a generation of people who sort of spawned a lot of this conspiracy theorizing world. Yeah, Hoover's great political cause was anti-communism, and he, you know, articulated it, uh, you know, sometimes in a fairly narrow national security vein, but often as, you know, a a great cultural struggle, as well as, you know, a, a struggle in which every American needed to participate and in which, you know, communists were hidden, they were deceptive, they could be anywhere in your church, in your neighborhood, lying to you, right, and had a kind of conspiratorial tone to it. Um, his famous book, Masters of Deceit, which came out in 1958, was a beloved book of the kind of burgeoning conservative movement, uh, as well as the, the far right. So both the kind of Buckleyite conservatives of that era, and then the Birchers and the much more conspiratorial right that emerged during the period as well. And one of the funny things about Hoover is that 
you know, this is a this is an anti-statist right, a right that kind of hates federal bureaucrats. I mean, they are the worst, right? Uh, and they love J. Edgar Hoover because they saw him, I think, both as one of their few advocates in Washington, and also the idea that he had all of these files meant, you know, that when Hoover said the communists are everywhere, they're hiding among you, it had a kind of it's legitimating so process, yeah. right? A, a kind of legitimating power to it that that almost nobody else in American life had. So it's a very interesting uh, set of relationships. Now, of course, he wanted to empower them. He liked them. And then there are a lot of moments where it feels like they're getting out of control. They're undermining the FBI's professionalism. So then he denounces them. And there are a lot of his own ex-agents who become these big sort of far-right celebrities and spokespeople during it's kind of a metaphor for the modern Republican Party, right? I mean, you you kind of create this cadre of of um, activists. You um, you kind of train them in, um, uh, and then it gets completely and then you can't out of control. control them at all. And yes. you know, all of a sudden, they're they're all signing up to work for Donald Trump. Um, right. You know who. I, 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 it's a, it's a, and there's a kind of reap what you sow quality to it, but there's also a, but, the, but there's also a, a real irony. Um, all right. So last, before we, uh, uh, open it up, I'm, I'm, we've gone this far without talking about Hoover's homosexuality. Um, which I thought you treated in a in a fascinating way, which was to actually take his relationship seriously as a marriage. Um, and uh, you debunk cautiously the sort of famous cross-dressing myths. Um, but I'm left with this mystery, which is, Here's a guy who has a, it, it's a weird combination of completely closeted in that he denies he's, uh, you know, he denies he's he's gay and actually sends agents to terrorize people who whisper about it. On the other hand, he has a completely open relationship with his one of his deputies over 40 years uh in which they vacation together as as a couple they they go to state dinners together uh they hang out with the nixons they write notes signs with the two of them um and everybody kind of knows but nobody but people act as though that's um uh, a perfectly respectable Washington relationship, even at the height of the lavender scares. And so I'm I just want you to square the circle. How you know, you said before it was all about what he could get away with. How did he think he could get away with that? And how did he do it? Well, I'm not sure there is a lot of squaring the circle. I mean, I think you've described very well this kind of paradox at the heart of Hoover's 
both personal and public life, which is that, you know, it was at once his relationship with Clyde Tolson was very open, very widely respected, you know, down to really the final image in the book, which is Hoover's funeral in Congressional Cemetery in Washington, in which the military honor guard folds up the flag, the American flag on Hoover's casket, and they turn and they give it to Clyde Tolson as they would to a spouse or to the next of kin, right? And by the way, if you've never been to Hoover's grave at the Congressional Cemetery, it's (laughs) it's maintained beautifully to this day. Um, There's uh, it's just one of the weirdest places in Washington, and you need to go to the Congressional. It's it's a beautiful walk. John Quincy Adams is buried there, too. It's like, it's a great cemetery, but the Hoover grave is just one of my favorite things in Washington. Right. Sorry, the, I, Tolson, the Tolson grave is not very far away from the Hoover grave. That here. I did um, not so, know. Yeah, um, so Clyde Tolson is just, I don't know, 50 feet, 50 feet away. So as in life, they're not together. Um, in the sense that they're not in the same plot, but they're but they're right there. And if you know what's you know you know their relationship to each other, then then there they are uh, together in death as in life. So you know I think that uh, Hoover and Tolson had a deep and meaningful relationship, and one about which they were also kind of ferociously defended and secretive in in lots of ways. Um, that uh, that had to do with the era in which they existed as as government servants. You know, I think actually for me and for many people, I think that read the book, the more surprising piece is how open it was, right? How widely respected, how often documented in the gossip columns, etc., um, for for this extraordinary period of time. Yeah, and how um, how it seems to have not, uh, you know, his critics don't, you know, at a time when nobody was above uh, uh, gay baiting, his critics don't seem to have ever said, um, uh, have made an issue of it. His, um, he wasn't, uh, it doesn't seem to have impeded his uh ability to be a sort of national spokesman for conventional morality, as you point out. And he, it it just seems like a weird kind of decision on the part of everybody to close their eyes to a reality that was staring everybody in the face. I think that's right. And, and often people actually did understand there's plenty of gossip Right. There was plenty of uh, of talk about all of it. But I think you're right. In the end, uh, it didn't particularly damage him because he had so many other sources of power and so many other ways of kind of uh, enforcing and being effective at at what he wanted to do. And so do you see this as I mean, I, I suppose there are multiple ways to see this aspect of the story. One is that it's rank hypocrisy and nothing else, that this is a powerful guy who uh, gets away with it because, you know, because he's a combination of very powerful and 
you know, and uh, discreet. Um, and um, another way to think about it is that it's um, it, it is that he was, um, you know, he it, it's it's actually kind of charming that he he sort of hit it, but sort of didn't. He was um, uh, I thought it was you know your account of his. Uh, behavior at the stork club there's this point at which he sort of decides heck with it i'm just going to be a sort of bon vivant um and go to new york every weekend and hang out with movie stars um and he kind of lets loose a little bit and i'm i'm it, it's it seems to me there's a there's a oh and then the other thing that was interesting was the way he handled investigations of homosexuality of other government officials, which he seems to have been more sensitive about than other people were at the time. So I, I was he was he capable of was he showing grace to people who of in the way that he was demanding it of them or asking of it, or was he just a hypocrite? Well, I think it depends on uh, when and where and who. <laughs> so, so the story of kind of gay identity and the repression of gay people in the federal government isn't actually a static story in the 30s and 40s into the early 40s anyway, right? It's a very different situation than you get by the mid 40s and through to the to the to the mid to late 60s and even into the 70s when it became federal policy that if you were gay you could not serve uh in the federal civil service, right? And so uh, that period of the Stork Club that you're talking about is a period of much more openness um, in the 30s, and you can see that reflected in Hoover's life. You know, as we begin to get along, he becomes himself uh, much more, um, I guess we would say, closeted uh, during the period of the Lavender Scare, and much more vicious in certain ways toward particularly low-level federal employees, uh, who the FBI, you know, the FBI didn't actually make that policy. Right? That was federal policy that the FBI was charged with enforcing, but they did very extensive investigations into the sex lives of government employees. Those investigations were responsible for lots of people being fired from their federal jobs and then blacklisted from federal employment. And it's during those years that he becomes really vicious about going after people were spreading information about him as well. Um, and that tended to be, you know, kind of shooting down. When you were talking about higher level government employees, right, people who were um, high appointed officials, who were important members of Congress, even Joe McCarthy himself, right, who was uh, rumored to be gay um, in the early 50s. Hoover's much more sensitive in the way that he's much more, you know, attuned to anyone in power. So there are lots of cases um, in which if you had enough power and influence, he would actually, you know, help ameliorate the story, keep it quiet, deal with it discreetly. Um, and so as with almost anything in Hoover's life, there are calculations of self-interest, there are calculations of power uh, that really shape how he behaves in a lot of different situations. What do you think the modern young FBI agent 
uh, who in some ways is still a reflection of J. Edgar Hoover. So the person is still disproportionately likely to be white, um, despite now the Bureau having all kinds of outreach uh, to non-white communities. The, it's, white, it's significantly whiter than the uh, uh, majority population. I think it's probably safe to say that it's more politically conservative on average. Uh, they don't do polls of the politics, but I think probably, right? It's certainly majority male uh, and there are all kinds of physical fitness requirements. And so you look at, like, what did Hoover want? He wanted a white, you know, strapping young men of good physique who were uh, 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 in excellent physical condition. Um, uh, um, and who... Um, uh, and who are you know, very good investigators. And oh, and then they go to Quantico, which he found, you know, created, and they develop all kinds of, um, uh, um, uh, they develop a whole bunch of skills in, in uh, areas that he found important. Um, what is the modern FBI, um, to, to what extent is it you know, still Hoover's institution, and to what extent is is all that stuff kind of a, a a rounding error on on the institution it has become, or be kind of a weird origin story, and has some sort of cultural resonance through the years, but is uh, is you know, it's not his institution anymore. Well, I think there are more mechanisms of accountability, certainly, uh, than there were during Hoover's era, uh, in which there were no congressional committees that had any access to uh, FBI information. There was no Freedom of Information Act, right? There was very uh, little control, even within the Justice Department, over what the FBI could do. So I think there are you know, not always incredibly effective or powerful, and we can debate the nature of them, um, but there are more mechanisms of control and accountability over the FBI than there were during Hoover's era. Uh, certainly that is true. But in fundamental ways, I think the FBI is still the institution that Hoover built. The essential elements of its internal culture, which is on the one hand, you know, a deep faith in a kind of professionalism, expert government service, nonpartisan identity, right? They're going to be the guys who stand apart from politics and kind of tell you the facts, um, right? It, that's still, I think, pretty core to the FBI's understanding of, of who it's supposed to be. And as you say, still a pretty conservative internal culture combined with that. Um, uh, those both you know, that was the central paradox of Hoover's life. Uh, you see that still there. I think the basic kind of jurisdictional building blocks that, that Hoover put in place are still what the FBI does, right? This kind of weird hybrid of law enforcement and intelligence. Um, a lot of the pieces that are there from Quantico to the lab to crime statistics, I mean, all of those 
uh, come out of the Hoover era as well. You know, and I think the Hoover era has lots of cautionary tales too for um, modern FBI agents, both in the ways that, you know, you look at something like the campaign against Martin Luther King, and there was almost no one internally who thought this was a bad idea, raised any objection to it, right? And so uh, Hoover's era was really an era of kind of not only cursed cult of personality, but real groupthink, I think, in which anyone who was going to have a dissenting voice was kind of pushed to the margins of the bureau or didn't have any role there at all. And then I think you can also see the ways in which, you know, moments of crisis, of national emergency, of one sort or another, whether it's the crime war of the 30s, or the Second World War, or the crises of the Cold War, sort of enabled the Bureau to do some of the things that, uh, you know, in the name of crisis, in the name of national security, that we now, in retrospect, find so objectionable. So I think there are lots of things to learn from the Hoover era. I think some of those things have been uh, learned to some degree, and others maybe uh, not as much, but um, I'd still say, you know, the FBI bears the stamp of Hoover, whether whether it wants to, uh, whether it wants to or not. And let's close on this. I, I'm curious whether you think it is a less legitimate institution as a result of that, or whether you say, hey, there's there's the good and bad of J. Edgar Hoover. The the good was the institution builder who uh, the bad was uh, a lot of the details of the institution that he built and a lot and some of the purposes that he set it to. Um, so you can be a young F- FBI agent leaving Quantico and feel proud of the part of the legacy that you have inherited. Or should you look at it and say, wait a minute, there's... Um, I just read Beverly Gage's book and I'm the inheritor of, of a really like I'm the, the, a branch of a really awful tree here. And uh, how, how should a incoming FBI person feel about the, given that they are now the inheritors of Hoover's Hoover's institution in a very meaningful sense, how should they feel about that? Well, I tried very hard in the book to give some credit where credit was due, um, in part because I think Hoover looms in our own moment as as such a one-dimensional villain that I did really try to look at the places where you know, he took a stand that seems admirable, where he pushed- He opposed Japanese internment. He opposed Japanese internment. He went after the Klan, right? In many ways, he he stood against certain elements of uh, the far right in the McCarthy era and other moments. I mean, there are lots of moments where you can look to uh, to find admirable- qualities that are both being articulated uh, by Hoover and then uh, I think institutionalized in the Bureau in in lots of ways. Many of those have to do with 
uh, you know, professionalism and law and uh, his vision of the Bureau as a place of incorruptibility and really as a counterweight to political pressure, right? So we can say it was very bad that J. Edgar Hoover had all of this autonomy and all of this power, but you know, it did allow him to push back sometimes in, in, in moments of uh, of political pressure. So, you know, I think that the it would be very easy if you could say, you know, denounce it all, be done with it all, and uh, and move on. But I think, you know, the 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 history is, is more complicated, and so certainly today's FBI agents have to look in a serious way at many of the really egregious things that the FBI did during Hoover's lifetime, and particularly see the ways they were produced by a particular institutional culture, a particular lack of accountability, and uh, a sense of crisis and righteousness. Uh, within the Bureau and within the country as a whole. But I don't think that that means that you need to then, you know, jettison everything, uh, everything that was built during those years, because there were elements that were, that were really important and that carry on into the present. Yeah, I think the fundamental challenge of the book is the, the awful person who created the the an institution that and and the degree to which his awful personality infuses the institution and affects the institution to this day including the good laudable and desirable things about the institution and so you can't you can't uh you can't wholly denounce it and of course you can't wholly accept it there's a, a disaggregation process that is uh, uh, very challenging and, and difficult. We are going to leave it there. Beverly Gage, it is a pleasure to meet you. The book is fabulous. It is G-Man. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, we will be back uh, next week to talk about uh, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, a new uh, or not quite so new book about um, uh, uh, the religious right and the, um, uh, written by, uh, a, a Christian scholar who has, uh, taken a, a deep sociological look, uh, at, uh, at it. It's, it's an amazing book. Uh, we will be back to talk about it. Thank you again. And thanks to everybody for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Good night.